Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this episode, Natalie Belanger of the Connecticut Historical Society talks to Brittany Yancey and Karen Lee Miller about their ongoing project to uncover the suffrage work of women of color in Connecticut, featured in the summer 2020 issue of Connecticut Explored magazine and in an upcoming exhibition at the Connecticut Historical Society. If you listen to history podcasts, you probably know that 2020 is the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave American women in every state the right to vote. Cultural institutions across Connecticut are marking the anniversary with exhibitions and programs. But public memory is a fickle thing. The way we remember the suffrage battle and its warriors today in 2020 is affected by a lot of factors, including the way that generations before us told the story. And for a long time, women of color were specifically left out of the story of women's suffrage. Today, we're going to hear from two women who are working to change the narrative around the suffrage fight here in Connecticut. Brittany Yancey is an assistant professor of humanities at Goodwin College. Karen Lee Miller is the research historian at the Connecticut Historical Society. Together with Eileen Frank, chief curator at the Connecticut Historical Society, they launched a project called The Work Must Be Done, Women of Color and the Right to Vote. Hi, Brittany. Hi, Karen. Hello. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. So thanks for joining me today. And I thought I'd start off by asking, um, how did this project come together? So last year, Eileen and I met up (laughs) in the middle of the chamber, actually, (laughs) at the state capitol. And we were on the floor at the unveiling of the Suffrage Commission organized by Secretary of the State, Denise Merle. And we had a conversation about the erasure of women of color in our discussion of the suffrage movement. And from there, and we just started talking because I told her that I, in my own research that I am doing, that I have come across something special that was happening down in New Haven with women, early women, club women who were involved in suffrage work. And the question for Eileen was, how do we tell that story in this moment when the state will be galvanizing around honoring and commemorating um, Connecticut women who were involved in the suffrage movement? And from there, we put our heads together and we, Karen, joined us to be able to think about how do we tell this narrative. Karen and Eileen worked diligently um, to think about what role could the Historical Society play in this process. We applied for a grant with the Connecticut Humanities and it just took off from there. And Karen and I have been working together. And what is interesting is that the Historical Society, and Karen can speak more in depth to this, had already had a collection of some African-American women who were on the ground and partnering with what I had already collected in my own work that I'm doing, um, looking at Black women's organizing, that 
we started to think about there's already a cohort, there's already a narrative that's already building here, that there is evidence of African-American women in particular who are organizing in Connecticut during this time. Yet, when we think about how we have commemorated and celebrated suffrage work, that they are left out of that narrative. And so for us, um, this is what the project, this is really how it stemmed. It was just us asking questions, us thinking about how can we celebrate these women in their work and ensure that we kind of restore them to the narrative. Karen, I don't know if you wanted to expand on that. Well, CHS worked with the Connecticut Women's Hall of Fame in the spring of last year, actually the preceding year maybe, uh, in order to create a suffrage uh, banners exhibit. And for that project, we had started researching African-American women's suffrages. Karen, could you tell us a little bit about, I'm really interested in where the sources or what kind of sources you found. I mean, sometimes when groups of people are left out of historical uh, narratives, it, it, it sometimes it does have to do with a lack of sources. And that can be sometimes because items were not preserved, um, or it can be because specific groups of people, maybe um, if we're looking at populations that were, for example, not literate. They're not leaving behind a lot of sources. But that wasn't true necessarily for the group of people you were looking at, correct? So I took the digital route, mainly due to, uh, we had planned more archival research, but of course, due to the pandemic, we weren't able to do a lot of the archival research that we had hoped to. So I, thanks to the increased uh, availability of digital resources, we're able to do things like look up voter records, um, look up newspapers online. So for example, the Hartford History Center recently has uh, received a grant in order to digitize all of the 1920 and beyond uh, voter registration records. So we were able to look up people's names and see and if they actually registered. Uh, we are able to look at a number of databases um, from CHS as well as the Library of Congress. I think it also takes um, looking. Look, people don't, this history has always been out there. Uh, recently, Brittany and I were talking, she had this fantastic question. She's like, how is it that people have written histories about Connecticut women's suffrage and left out women of color entirely? And I think we thought that it's because people couldn't conceptualize that women of color uh, could be suffragists or participated in the suffrage movement. But when we actually start looking, and even in newspapers or uh, you know civic records, church records, et cetera, we do find the histories and um, the legacies of these women's work. Brittany, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, one of the initial um, um, points that I had made with Eileen when we started this 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 particular project is that you know much of what um, much of the organizing of African American women, uh, particularly at the turn of the 20th century, was not considered suffrage work. Um, the white suffragists considered it race work. And so for them, they did not identify them or, you know, consider them part of the movement. They are left out. And so even when you start to think about, well, how do we tell this narrative? 
even the source material that we would go to consult has to change and be different. And so what I recommended to Eileen, I said, you know, to be able to do this, we're not going to be able to just rely on the typical sources that we use, that we're going to have to go into the communities where these women serve. We're going to have to go into the churches. We're going to have to look at the organizational records of the clubs that they organize in their community. Um, We're going to have to reach out to the community because I'm sure there's some great material in someone's basement um, (laughs) um, because their family were part of this network of activists. And so I I just think the way in which we envision, um, the way we have researched, the way that we have gone about telling the history of suffrage work and, and to a larger extent, the history of voting rights, right? Those who were part of this kind of longer struggle of voting rights in this country cannot be reduced to the kind of mainstream methods that we typically do and the sources that we can tip, um, that we typically consult that may be readily available, right? Because the women won't show up in those sources. Um, that you really have to do a lot of uh, digging. For example, one church that I um, was able to visit is Union Baptist Church here um, in Hartford. And I literally went down to the archive room in the basement of the church and had a wonderful time going through their records, right? And looking at the women who serve, looking through church directories, looking through programs of church anniversaries. I mean, these are, this is where they show up, right? This is where I can come across um, someone who is serving not only in their church, but bridges that because the church was such a critical space to not only show up to praise, but also to talk politics. You talked about how the white suffragists tended to think of the work done by African-American women as race work, right? Which, which implies that they were involved in other types of activism. Can you talk a little bit about some of those overlapping spheres of activism that these ladies were involved in? You know, I think one of the, the, the best examples I'd like to offer up here is... Um, in 1896, this is six years after NASA is established. Um, and so you have this mainstream organization that is established in 1890 of predominantly white women who at the time are not interested, right? in really working with African-American women. And so, whereas you would see prior to that, some alliances, you know, cooperative work happening, by 1890, you really start to see the way in which um, the color line really divides this movement in an intentional way. African-American women start to organize their own circles, their own clubs, organizations, leagues, and really defining their agenda on their own terms. In, in 1896, you have the establishment of the National Association for Colored Women's Clubs, and they called a convening in Washington, D.C. in July of that year. What is very important about that is that they establish an agenda. And on this agenda is not only suffrage, right, but you have lynching, right? You have educational access. You have job security. These are overlapping issues that are part of the agenda 
for Black women. Um, I mean, think about 1896. I mean, that is the same year that Plessy versus Ferguson is decided. And so you have a, 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 a complex agenda that is created. And, and for them, they understand the role of voting because voting is going to be able to address these other issues. But it's not the only issue that is on their agenda as they are battling multiple issues as it relates to their families and their communities and overall the state of Black people in the United States at the time. Karen, why don't you tell us about the name of the project, The Work Must Be Done? Where did that name come from and what does it mean to you? The the title of this project comes from Mary Townsend Seymour. So in about 1919, she wrote a letter to the president of the NAACP. And she's realizing that at this, uh, as we're getting closer to uh, the vote for the 19th Amendment, that African-American women may be excluded. Earlier, Alice Paul had made a statement saying that, you know, she was not necessarily saying that African-American women would be included. She didn't think that the federal amendment would necessarily guarantee them the right to vote. And of course, Mary Townsend Seymour is passionate and incensed and says that all women should be included in this. So when she writes to the NAACP, and she is uh, the president, one of the founders of the NAACP here in Hartford, but when she writes to the national president, she wants to ensure that the amendment is inclusive. So to give some background information, suffragists who had been picketed the White House, uh, many of them were arrested and after they were released, about 25 to 26 of them began a nationwide campaign for suffrage uh, by taking a train across the country. Their train was called either the Prison Special or Prison Express. And one of the cities that they stopped in was Hartford. In the newspapers, uh, such as The Current, this uh, event was covered and it mentioned that uh, white and African-American women received these suffragists. So we know the names of some of the white suffragists who were at the train station, but the newspapers do not mention who uh, among the or women of color were at the train station. And Mary Townsend Seymour was definitely one of those. We know for certain that she was there and that she went to the luncheon afterwards. When they were collecting donations at this event, Mary Townsend Seymour put up a donation and she said, I donate this as a a sign of asking people for inclusion for all women. And she says, without compromise. So that's the phrase that I remember that she says, without compromise, that we must include all women in this uh, 19th Amendment or what was also called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. Her letter afterwards to the NAACP recounted this event and talked about how the work must be done, that there must be more work towards achieving suffrage and being inclusive and making sure that women of um, all backgrounds were included without compromise. So we adopted this title for our project, not only to honor one of the great African-American suffragists in Connecticut, but also to 
give us structure and to frame our own work. And we hope that the community and other uh, scholars and citizen historians and students will also join us in this work because the work must be done. We must uncover more stories. We must be more inclusive in our sense of uh, history narratives. Otherwise, you know, our standard Google searches only turn up a few names are repeated and we're not telling the full story of how many, many women were part of the suffrage movement. You identified this cohort of African-American women whose activism was multifaceted. I'm interested in what was the relationship between these women activists and um, the Connecticut Women's Suffrage Association, which is the the organization that by the 19-teens was the um, premier suffrage association in Connecticut, the one with the most attention, the one with, I uh, had, I think, uh, 30,000 members. Um, what was the relationship like between um, these groups? Yeah, so there wasn't much of a relationship between the groups that you would have um, a few individuals um, and one that I, I think that is probably gives us the clearest example um, is Mary Townsend Seymour and her relationship with Josephine Bennett. They managed to form a friendship, a partnership. They were allies. And what's interesting is that suffrage was actually not at the core of their connection. They were labor activists, and they bonded over being union organizers and their commitment to the Labor Party. Um, And they understood that standing up for working people, standing up for women, working women in particular, was high priority and something that they bonded over. And so you start to see this wonderful friendship in terms of doing work together form between the two of them. Seymour is just a powerhouse in and of herself, though. I mean, I, I, you know, as as Karen identified, I am a fangirl of Mary Seymour um, because I, you know, you talk about someone who works her way up and she is just committed to really centering and standing up for not only her community, but particularly for women in a way that you don't really see widespread, right? Particularly uh, during, during this time. And it's interesting that in 1917, she has a relationship with the founder of the NAACP, W.E.B. Du Bois, who is actually in Connecticut often. His grandfather is actually a minister at St. Luke's in New Haven. And so he actually spends the summer in Connecticut. And so it's not weird to have her in communication and in partnership with the founders and, you know, the leadership of the NAACP. And so to be able to establish the NAACP in Hartford, along with her husband, Thomas Seymour, to go from there to go right into labor issues that are happening with Black women who are working in the tobacco field and working in partnership with Josephine to establish an all-Black women's union. I mean, that is incredible progressive radical work. So you have that taking place. And this is all before 1920. She goes on, her and Josephine go on to serve on the state's uh, central labor union. 
And so she just, she already just has this, this record of, of work and activism that when you talk about telling the history of suffrage in Connecticut, I, I don't understand how she could ever be overlooked, right? How she doesn't show up in the work. In 1920, she becomes part of the first cohort of African-American women to run for state office in the country. And she doesn't do it on a main party ticket. She does it on the Farm Labor Party ticket. And so, again, when you talk about trying to identify, you know, who is voting, who is running for office, she's not going to show up in our kind of mainstream source material. I actually, the source that I found her, I mean, it was was a, a text that is looking at third party leadership. And so, you know, this is where she shows up. But another woman who was quite powerful is Sarah Lee Brown Fleming, who was in New Haven. And she comes to this work from a different route of being a club woman. And as I stated before, you have the National Association of Colored Women Clubs uh, that is um, all across the country, and particularly the New England um, area. And Fleming actually mobilizes Black women who are across the state in areas like Waterbury, um, Hartford, Norwich, New London, and they are serving in these leagues, associations, these small clubs where they come together to talk about a range of issues. And so in New Haven, you have a old, long-standing club called the 20th Century Club. That is a club of African-American women. Most of these women, middle-class, upper-class women who are coming together talking about issues of how to better their community. Fleming, though, really changes and really brings a more uh, commitment to suffrage work and activism to that particular club. And you start to see them doing more work that relates and aligns with the suffrage movement. After the 19th Amendment is passed, she changes the name in 1929 to the the Women's Civic League. And she's already in the network with the National Leadership of the NACW. And so presidents like Mary Bacleod Bethune, um, she's very much in partnership with and has a relationship with and serves under her as an editor of the National Association's news organ, National Notes, that's what it's called. And so you see her serving at various capacities. She is also, and this is something that I found to be fascinating, that the the... League of Women Voters in New Haven is something um, that I think is that we need to explore more because Sarah Fleming was part of the League of Women Voters in the 19th Ward. And I'm trying to understand that more. And in fact, I have actually reached out to the League of Women Voters. Um, I, I want to work with them to try to uncover what is happening in their section in New Haven as multiple African-American women are actually part of this movement and giving the organization's own history um, and um, with white supremacy and racial politics that I would seem that New Haven seems far more progressive than where the national organization is at the time in the 1920s. And so we're going to be getting together to understand that more. You know, women like Fleming, women um, like Seymour and others that we have identified 
bring a certain complexity to the history of suffrage um, in the United States and um, really allow us to look at African-American women in a much more complex way than what we typically do. Being able to tell this story and really be able to center them allows them to narrate their own history. So um, I'll just leave it there. We'll return in a minute, but first, the backstory on two publications about the richness of the African-American experience in Connecticut, published by Connecticut Explored and available to listeners. For adults and high school students, African-American Connecticut Explored is a book of 50 essays by 30 scholars on the people and events that have contributed to Connecticut over four centuries. And brand new, our book for middle school students, Venture Smith's Colonial Connecticut, In this book, available in print and online, students learn about the founding of Connecticut through the first-person narrative of Venture Smith, who was kidnapped as a boy in West Africa, grew up enslaved in the colonies of Rhode Island, New York, and Connecticut, self-emancipated as a young man, bought the freedom of his wife and children, and as a successful colonial farmer, fisherman, and trader, published his life story in 1798. It's a true story of freedom in the Revolutionary Era. Find out more at CT History for Kids, on Facebook, Instagram, and on the web at cthistoryforkids.org. And now, back to the episode. So, Karen, we've heard from Brittany that she's a fangirl um, for uh, Mary Townsend Seymour. Are there any of the women whose lives uh, you learned about that kind of, that you could describe yourself as as a big fan of theirs? I think one of the most exciting finds for us was uh, Rose Payton, who was our who was our earliest official woman voter in Hartford. So she registered to vote in 1893. Women in Connecticut gained their voting rights gradually. So uh, we gained the right to vote on school issues in 1893 and then library issues in 1909. So in 1893, she's one of the very first uh, women in general to register to vote. Uh, Most women, uh, black or white, did not take the opportunity to vote uh, in this era. So the newspaper printed an article about it saying she is the first African-American woman registered to vote in Hartford and probably all of Connecticut. So by mid-September 1893, only 58 women had registered to vote and Rose Payton was among those very early registrants. And, you know, Brittany and I are are fascinated, like, who is this woman? Who is this trailblazer? She, we know that she uh, lived in was born in Virginia and migrated to uh, Hartford. She was married to Fontaine Payton, who was a cook at Union Station. They had a daughter named Lillian. She worked as a laundress and a, oh, as a, a nurse. So it is so interesting to think about this woman taking time out of her day to go and register to vote. And we know that she was very much interested in having an electoral voice because she registers to vote every year uh, until her death in 1917. Uh, CHS has the record books for all of the women voters in Hartford from 1894 to 1919. And we find Rose Payton and think about how she takes time out of her workday and she's not solicited among the rallies. So in the end of September, 1893, we see 
uh, white women having rallies, trying to gather more interest in uh, women's voting. And there was even like ladies day at the town clerk's office trying to encourage them to come in. And Rose Payton registered before this date to vote. Another woman that we are celebrating is Mary A. Johnson, who came to Hartford uh, well before uh, 1917, but she was born in Virginia, so she was an earlier uh, migrant to the North. Mary A. Johnson is a force of nature. She helped found the Women's League of Hartford in 1918. In 1919, the Women's League, which was a combination of women from the Hartford area or as, as well as the South. So this is one of those collaborative moments because there was tension between the Connecticut-born African-Americans and the Southern migrants who were moving into the area. But this league made sure to bring women of different backgrounds together, and they formed the Women's League to offer a variety of services from um, support services for people migrating from the South, uh, classes, programs, child care, and later on became a meeting ground so that, you know, politicians coming through would be stopping at this Women's League's location. In 1919, they opened the Community House in Hartford. And this is a central organization and significant not only to Hartford, but Connecticut, because it becomes this meeting place, this uh, support network for the entire community, people coming in and out of the state, uh, political events, providing a variety of educational and social services and even entertainment because Hartford and Connecticut was not prepared for the number of migrants who moved north during the Great Migration. So Mary A. Johnson uh, becomes the first president of the Women's League, helps found the community house, and uh, later on she plays civic roles like serving on the mayor's committee for various programs. She helps try to found an unemployment bureau for African-Americans. She is the first woman on a standing committee for the mayor's office uh, dealing with juvenile issues. In 1948, she runs for the Connecticut State uh, House of Representatives on the People's Party ticket, and she was uh, defeated. But nevertheless, she paves the way. She shows people what, um, how African Americans can become really involved in politics and hold uh, leadership roles. And she changes the way people conceptualize, you know, how they can express themselves and hold social roles, which are, uh, ways in which you can uplift your entire community. It's really uh, fascinating to me that uh, you look at the lifespan of someone like Mary Johnson because she passed away in the in 1959. And to think about the way that the civil rights movement is so often taught in, in schools and is sort of held in the popular memory, uh, civil rights is something that started in the 1950s. And sometimes people will just say like the 60s as the civil rights era. But people like her were doing that work so much earlier. They were doing that work in the 19th century. They were doing that work um, during World War I. They were doing that work during World War II. And the work of the uh, sort of better known civil rights uh, activists, people like Dr. King and Rosa Parks was so much built on the work of the Mary Johnsons of the world, but they don't often get credit in our historical memory as Americans. And I, I think that the work you guys are doing 
is fantastic in bringing all of this this to light because these are people whose stories really do deserve to be told and not not just for their sake but because their stories complicate the story we tell about America the idea that America most of America only began to become aware of racial injustice in the 1950s and 60s and you know before that it was just the way things were nobody point, was pointing those things out the lives of a Seymour or a Mary Johnson they just they just bring the lie to that. There were people shouting from the rooftops throughout our history that there was injustice in America and that there was work that needed to be done to bring about equality and equity. You know, women that we have been able to um, come across and uncover, you know, speaks to the complexity that's there amongst women of color in Connecticut. Um, And so you have women who considered themselves suffragists. You had women who felt that they didn't necessarily align with the suffrage movement, but were completely committed to voting rights. And then you had women who spoke out against the suffrage movement, like Laura Bell McCoy, who is a Native American woman in New Haven who is most known for um, her role when she is elected, one of the first women of color elected to a local um, office when she was elected in 1940 uh, to the Board of Aldermen. However, she has by then has had a long career as a community leader, but she did not consider herself a suffrage by far, but he does pursue office um, and uh, for the latter part of her life was very much involved in not only um, politics um, at the state level, but even the national level. She actually served on a White House committee and received an honor of distinction from President Gerald Ford before she passed. And so when we talk about the role of this project, that we are trying to bring a um, a more complex way of understanding how women of color served, organized the their strategies and their ideas, um, not only just about suffrage, right, but about larger um, ideals about citizenship, about democracy, right, about freedom. And we're so excited about the work that we have done because we are we are understanding that more. We um, very excited to be able to share that um, and work in partnership with churches, organizations, and other um, scholars and community leaders who um, have helped us do this work. So it is a collaborative effort and one that I feel very privileged to be a part of. If people who are listening to this have information or believe that they have something to contribute to this project, where can they go? We have a website set up. It's uh, chs.org backslash WOC votes. And on that site, we have a a research guide. So if you're interested in learning uh, ways, uh, suggestions, resources for investigating the topic yourself, there's uh, uh, sources to help you. We also have a community input form so that if you have maybe suggestions, a name for us to look into, or if you have your own family histories or someone that you uh, have read about, please fill out that community input form. And we'd love to you know, invite this collaboration of the community. 
Thank you, Brittany. Thank you, Karen. I'm Natalie Belanger with the Connecticut Historical Society. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about this topic, visit the Connecticut Historical Society's website at chs.org backslash WOC votes. For a broader look at the women's suffrage movement in Connecticut, you can see the exhibit A Vote of Her Own, The Long Fight for Women's Suffrage on view at the Connecticut Historical Society this fall. And don't forget to order your copy of the summer issue of Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org. I'm Walt Woodward. Thanks for listening.